the Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, Tom! I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Have an easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Hey, lucky team, Mr. Sam. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program. Old fashioned radio for a new generation. Our fellow Americans. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans. And soon, they will be available to everyone. The science is clear. These vaccines will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. They could save your life. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. That's the first step to ending the pandemic and moving our country forward. It's up to you. MTA Flint is nationally recognized for continually seeking to provide sustainable, reliable, and cost-efficient transportation for individuals throughout the region. Through work-related and non-emergency medical transportation and your ride services, MTA is moving people with future and alternative fuel technologies. More information about MTA Flint and specialized services is available at mtaflint.org. Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. And welcome back, everybody. This is the Tom Sumner Program. My guest this hour is the uh, author of a book. Uh, well, she's a Muslim-American who grew up in California, and she uh, has been answering questions on Islam ever since she can remember. So she's written a book, and she can just say now, read the book, uh, Demystifying <laughs> Sharia, What It Is, How It Works, and why it's not taking over our country. Um, and uh, the author is Sumbul Ali Karamali, and she joins me by phone. Sumbul, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Tom. And, and am I, I know you taught me how to pronounce these things before we went on the air, but am I doing okay? You were perfect. Okay, good. If I if I mess it up, my apologies because I'm terrible with names. <laughs> but um, but let, let me ask you about this: is is this something? Um, first of all, do you practice your Muslim um, uh, allegiance in things that you wear, in clothing, and so on, it's so that it becomes obvious to people that you are in fact a Muslim? Uh, well, I don't cover my hair. Okay. Um, and uh, I would say that um, it's, you know, not all Muslim scholars agree that women are uh, required to cover their hair. Uh, everyone agrees that both men and women should be modest. That's what the Quran says. So, you know, there's always um, a question, though, like what does modesty mean, right? It might mean different things in different cultures. Um but I was always, you know, my mother didn't cover her hair, and and uh, none of our Muslim women friends growing up covered their hair. It was not something that 
I grew up doing. Other people do grow up doing it. Um, there was, you know, there's a really interesting debate, Tom, in Egypt. Um, it was a while ago, but it was between two very high-level Islamic scholars, and one said that it was a duty for Muslim women to cover their hair, and the other one said it wasn't. And they both had lots of um, foundations and documentation to support their positions, but they disagreed. And in Islam, that's okay. You can have two Muslim scholars disagreeing, and you can decide which one to follow. Um, well, maybe, maybe they need to watch more Star Trek. <laughs> Or I think everyone should watch more Star Trek. <laughs> or, or listen to more opera. Now, that, that that seems like a weird mix to me, Sambol, that uh, that you uh, enjoy watching Star Trek reruns and listening to opera. Those seem well, like they're from two different worlds. You know, Captain Kirk was my very first crush, I have to say. <laughs> and he was, he was my hero. And... Um, it's really funny that Demystifying Sharia is my third book. So when I started to write my first book, I was amazed. I was sitting here writing a book trying to answer the questions that people had always asked me about Islam. And yet all these Star Trek episodes kept sidling into my brain. And I thought, this is strange. And then I realized, well, Star Trek was about social justice and universal values and fairness and tolerance. And that's what and I'm it was about diversity and multiculturalism long before we even knew to say those words. Yes, you're absolutely right. I mean, they had a black woman who was fourth in command of, of a flagship starship. So that was really a remarkable thing. They had a Russian on the bridge. They had a, a Japanese person. So it was. It was very diverse, and it was meant to be that way. Uh, Gene Roddenberry actually came up with the show in order to uh, feature those things, feature multiculturalism and diversity. The first interracial kiss on television, too. You're not going to lose me on Star Trek trivia. I, <laughs> I actually saw Gene Roddenberry speak in person once. Um, oh. and, it was, and it was as delightful as you might expect. Mm-hmm. And, and that's wonderful. And and uh, before we get off of Star Trek, which which we need to do, <laughs> um, is I'll just share this. At the thing where I saw Gene Roddenberry speak, they showed Star Trek bloopers, and there is no greater thrill than watching Spock <laughs> crack up. <laughs> I can imagine. I can imagine. <laughs> well, it was all all my books. All my books have Star Trek examples in them because, strangely enough, I found that they're applicable. Yeah, they are. (laughs) They're applicable. And we see that in the television show The Big Bang Theory a lot, Mm -hmm. where where they'll they'll make Star Trek references as, you know, as as though it were some kind of Koran or Bible or, you know, (laughs) organizational document for civilization. Um, yeah. and, and mine, and I am a Trekkie and I'll admit it, but, um, but I drive my friends crazy with, uh, West Wing references. I haven't seen that. Yeah. It's, it's a master's course in, uh, in, in, uh, American government. It's, it, mm-hmm. it, it's, it's pretty good. And there are some wonderful 
comments. There's a great joke about two politicians that, and this comes from West Wing, so I'll I'll add you to my list of friends that are annoyed with me for these references. <laughs> but there are two politicians, and, and they're yelling at each other, and one says to the other, are you lying to me? And he says, yeah, but hear me out. <laughs> anyway, let's, uh, let's, let's bring things back to the... Uh, the 21st century here and um, talk about Sharia and what it means, especially from a Muslim American legal expert. There are a number of things that I think people get wrong, that there's there's just Mm -hmm. plain misinformation out there. And hopefully we can maybe sort some of it out. Um, one of the things is, and I love that it's in the title of the book, the book, uh, once again, is Demystifying Sharia, what it is, how it works, and why it's not taking over our country. There has been talk about Sharia law, and should it be included in American jurisprudence? Can you unpack that and sort that out a little bit? Is that just completely an irrational fear that it might be or is i mean is there even such a thing as sharia law yeah well sure um first of all nobody talks about sharia law this is something that was just kind of a western construct because sharia is not law the way we think of law it's not rigid and enforceable it's a massive religious guidelines is essentially what it is and what i tell people If I only have five seconds to define it, I say, loosely, Sharia just means Islam. That's all it is. It's it's the religious guidelines in Islam, most of which have to do with personal conduct, like how many times do I pray? How do I pray? What do I say when I pray? Or uh, when am I supposed to fast? When does the fast begin? What am I supposed to do while I'm fasting? This kind of thing. That's what most of Sharia is about. Um, Excuse me. Literally speaking, the word Sharia means the road to the watering place. So if you're living in the desert, which is where a lot of religions were born, you want to be on the road to the watering place, right? (laughs) And And that comes up in other religions, too. Ah, yes. Um, So in religious terms, in Islamic terms, the road to water is... uh, the right road, or the, the, the path to righteousness, you might say. And so for Muslims, the question is, what do I do in order to be on the path to righteousness? And early Muslim scholars, they looked to the Quran, which is the Muslim holy book, and they looked to the words and deeds of the Prophet Muhammad, and they looked for answers to that question, like, what do we do in order to be on the path to righteousness? And they interpreted the religious texts and came up with books and books and books of interpretations uh, of religious interpretations and masses of of religious guidelines, similar to the Jewish halakha. Uh, it's very similar. It's, it's interpretive literature on the religious texts. And that whole thing, like the Quran and the words and deeds of the Prophet and all these man-made religious guidelines, they're often all referred to as Sharia. Um, but the thing about Sharia, which is crucial to understand, is that um, in Islamic history, well, first of all, it evolves. It's not set in stone. Sharia was meant to evolve uh, in terms of geography, circumstance, time and place. The second thing is that in Islamic history, 
the the people who governed were always different from the people who made the religious law, and often they were at odds with each other. So the rulers were not the ones making the religious law and enforcing it. It was not a theocracy in Islamic lands. So um, the idea that we have today of this, you know, black and white medieval religious law that's going to be imposed on everyone is just not right. Uh, it's not even right if you were living in a Muslim country, but it's certainly not right if you're living in America, because we have the Constitution. Um, our Constitution, the First Amendment, prohibits any religious law from taking over the United States. And if it's applicable at all, it's because people agree to be bound by it, but it's always restricted by American law and American public policy. So there's nothing to be afraid of, <laughs> in other words. Well, yeah, and... Another thing that that I've always been very curious about, and I haven't studied any of the documents to the degree that I really should to even raise this question, but aren't there a lot of, isn't there a lot of overlap between the Quran, the Torah, the Bible? Absolutely there is, Tom. Um, so Islam, Muslims actually accept Judaism and Christianity as part of the Islamic tradition. So um, so Muslims believe in the Judeo-Christian prophets. You know, we believe in Adam, Noah, Jesus, Moses, Solomon, David, and a host of others. Uh, Jesus, in fact, Jesus and Moses both are, in fact, two of our most revered and respected prophets, in addition to, of course, Muhammad, who is our, our main prophet. But yes, so... So a lot of what is in um, Judeo-Christian tradition is accepted uh, in Islam, of course, with some differences. Well, despite the differences, um, could it be said that, that regardless of, of how we pray or how we observe certain uh, cultural traditions, we're all praying to the same God? That's what Muslims believe. So, in fact, the Quran actually says that our God and your God is one. So, Allah, I have to say, Allah is just the Arabic word for God. So it's just like Dios is the Spanish word for God, or Dieu is the French word for God. Allah is just the Arabic word for God. And in fact, Arabs, Jews, and Christians also call their God Allah, because it just means God. And in fact, uh, in Islamic law... And in the Quran, Jews and Christians are um, considered believers. They're not considered infidels or, you know, enemies of, of Islam. They're considered believers. And in fact, the Quran actually says specifically that Jews, Christians, and other monotheists will go to heaven if they good if they do good deeds, and they have uh, and they shall receive their reward from God. More about demystifying Sharia with Muslim American author Sumbul Ali Karamali. Straight ahead. From the Tom Everybody's doing a brand new dance now. Hi, this is Mark Farner, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. 
I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. While we've been staying safe at home, scientists have been on a journey. The destination, a COVID-19 vaccine. This journey began decades ago with research into other coronaviruses. Scientists built from there with months of research and development, cooperation with other experts worldwide, and clinical trials on tens of thousands of volunteers of diverse race, age, and health status. They arrived at a safe, effective vaccine and hundreds of thousands in Michigan have already been vaccinated. But the next step is ours. We need to get the vaccine when we can. Keep wearing masks correctly and taking precautions until we reach our destination, freedom from COVID-19 and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wanky stories we call the X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County, where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods, and in the diverse city beyond. Where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air. Where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums. Where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses. And where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County. Where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at michigan.org. Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner Program is provided by Swiftlet Technology, engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology. I know of a place where you never get harmed, a magical place with magical charms, indoors, indoors, indoors. 
Hi, this is Deb Cherry, Genesee County Treasurer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Radio Show. More about demystifying Sharia with Muslim American author Sumbul Ali Karamali. Straight ahead. I have to ask you this question because I didn't have, <laughs> I didn't have the knowledge that you have um, when I was confronted with this. But I, I had a, a guest on my show many years ago who was an African American who had turned Muslim because he believed that um, Muhammad called for rising up against um, white supremacy globally or, or the global <laughs> dominance by, by Europeans or Western Europeans. And I really didn't know what to say about that because, you know, I don't know what Muhammad has said or taught because I haven't, you know, read the 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 works. But it seemed like maybe he was becoming Muslim for the wrong reasons. <laughs> well, I think probably, and, and I, of course, can't know this for sure since I haven't spoken to him, but I think probably... Um, what we're talking about is two two different things. So it might be that he was part of the Nation of Islam. Uh, the Nation of Islam is not, it's not an offshoot of Islam. It's actually an American, African-American nationalist movement that uh, began in the early 20th century. And those who founded the Nation of Islam and developed it took elements of Christianity, elements of Islam, and they put them all together in, in their own religion. And so a lot of people may have heard of Louis Farrakhan. Right. Um, he, is, he is part of the Nation of Islam. So Malcolm X uh, um, was also part of the Nation of Islam. But what happened uh, with Malcolm X is that he went to Mecca for the pilgrimage. And when he was there with millions of Muslims doing the pilgrimage, he realized the Nation of Islam is nothing like Islam. <laughs> and he went there, and he saw that there were all kinds of skin colors there, all kinds of races, all kinds of people. And his wife said he went to Mecca as a black Muslim and came back as a Muslim. And under his influence, the whole nation of Islam converted to Islam around 1980, except for a small group that Louis Farrakhan still leads. And they are still the original nation of Islam, um, with a very different theology than, than Islam. And again, the original nation of Islam was, was founded as a black American nationalist movement, and some of the people who belonged to it did have, um, it was a separatist movement. Some did, did advocate rising up against white, uh, white people. That is not mainstream Islam, though. That is not, that is not Islam. That was the nation of Islam. So um, in Islam, there is no... There's no such thing like that. Um, in fact, in fact, um, for most of his mission, when Prophet Muhammad was preaching his religion, for most of it, um, he and his followers accepted persecution and abuse without fighting back. So the Quran is full of uh, references, which says basically that even if they persecute you, um, turn the other cheek or let them go. And so 
Muhammad and his followers didn't fight back against people who were persecuting them until things got so bad that um, that they were in danger and then they fled the city. So, um, so I would say he, he perhaps this guy you were talking to was was referring to the nation of Islam instead of. No, Islam. I think you're. I think you're probably right on that. And, and like I say, I, I I didn't know enough to to really know what to say about that. That that. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think that's unfortunate that a lot of people, and I count myself among them, um, don't understand very much about Islam. Mm-hmm. And, and well, you know, there's there's a reason. There's a, um, should we talk about the reason? Yeah, please. <laughs> it's not it's it's not an accident. So what happened uh, when Islam was born in the seventh century in Arabia? Um, Christian Europeans, of course, didn't really know about it, right? Because it was far away. It was geographically far away. Um, They only heard that it was spreading quickly. And all religions consider religions that come after them as cult religions or false religions. All religions do this. You know, um, Islam considers the Baha'i to be a false religion. Uh, Christians consider Islam to be a false religion, uh, Jews considered Christianity to be a false religion, and it's just something that happens with every religion. So, so um, in the seventh century and later in Europe, uh, Christian Europeans were scared of Islam, and they they didn't know any Muslims because obviously there were no Muslims in Europe at that time. And so, a whole mythology came up about what Muslims believed, and it was full of tall tales. Uh, Muslims were portrayed as having purple skin or or blue skin. Uh, you know, there were monsters, considered as monsters. Um, and so the old, old uh, sorry, new tall tales just kept being added to the old tall tales. And our, um, and these these stereotypes really filled historical narratives, arts and literature. In fact, there are lots of paintings that um, portray Muslims as, as the monsters or the enemies, even in situations where they were not, you know, existing um, at the time. So it's kind of full of our culture um, to have these myths and tall tales about Muslims. We inherited this historical tradition from the Europeans. What's interesting is that in the Middle Ages, about almost up to half the Christians in the world actually lived under Muslim rule and not in Europe. But we don't have their records because until recently, people didn't read Syriac, and that's what they wrote in. Instead, um, we, we have our records from the Europeans who wrote in Latin and Greek and who kind of perpetuated these, these tall tales. And so it's a historical tradition akin to anti-Semitism that really portrays Muslims as the enemy. You know, in the West, we've always looked at Muslims through the lens of the enemy, and it's still there. You know, it's in our television, in our movies, in our school textbooks. Um, in my daughter's middle school textbook, there are only two pictures of Muslims, and they were both of sort of backward-looking people. I mean, reading this chapter on Islam, you'd never know that Muslims lived in buildings, right? Uh, because they were portrayed as kind of sitting in the sand. Well, let's talk, so, let's, let's talk a little bit about, about some of those misconceptions and and how they they continue to be promoted because 
in a in a post nine eleven America, um, mm-hmm. all Arabs and and Muslims and and anyone who might uh, practice Islam has has been painted with this idea that everybody from the Middle East is either a terrorist or harboring terrorists and mm-hmm. that that these quote Islamic extremists and I always try to be careful to differentiate between Islamic and Islamic extremists are these um, these these sword wielding decapitating monsters that want to take over the world and we yeah, see and these not, images reinforced in you know the news broadcasts with these characters cutting people's heads off in public and in sending out these videos and it and it, reaffor- it reinforces that that fear that people naturally have about the unknown it confirms our biases, and and our media is Agreed. no. Uh, I mean, our, our media is is also subject to those biases, right? So, of course, um, you know, according to George, uh, one Georgetown study, ninety percent of of uh, news stories featuring Muslims are in the context of violence. Ninety percent. That's that's so, what I'm. That's what I'm saying. And and how right. do we? How do how do we? untangle that for people so that they understand that yeah. just because a well, person's a Muslim doesn't mean they subscribe to that behavior. Well, I think, I think a couple things. So first of all, um, if, if we were, if we only heard about Buddhists in the context of violence, we would think Buddhists were violent too, right? Of course. Yeah, so exactly. if you only hear about somebody in the context of violence, then of course you're going to think they're violent, and you're not even going to, you know, look past that. So that is one problem. Um, the other thing is to is to just look at the numbers. There are 1.7 or 1.8 billion Muslims in the world. That's almost a quarter of the world's population. Now, <laughs> if we were all terrorists. Wouldn't we have taken over the world by now? Well, it seems so we're like a, it. We're a quarter of the world's population. The other thing is to just look at the facts. So Stephen Fish, for example, is a professor at, at UC Berkeley, and he tackled this idea that that Muslims are more violent than other kinds of people. And he thought, well, if Muslims are more violent than other kinds of people, then murder rates in Muslim-majority countries should be higher, right? And right. so he did this expansive study, and he found that actually murder rates in Muslim-majority countries are considerably lower than in European countries or or non-Muslim majority countries. In fact, he found the higher the Muslim population in a country, the lower the murder rate. This is not something that uh, most people would expect, and, and you know, I was surprised by it too. But you know, those are objective studies. So I think it's important to like set aside our own. Um, biases and look at the look at the facts um you know the images that we have in the media are are just a minuscule fraction of a fraction of the world's population uh, i was i was um speaking to a a sixth grade classroom once and a little boy 
raised his hand and he said, I thought Muslim women were um, all covered up and they couldn't go anywhere without their husbands or brothers and they couldn't drive. So how did you get here? (laughs) (laughs) And and, and where's your uncle? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And, and, you know, I said, well, you know, you're thinking, uh, you're probably thinking about Saudi women. And Saudi women are only 2% of all the Muslim women in the world. 2%. Um, you know, so we, we are very familiar with that image, right? But, we're, but when I tell people, for example, that 13 Muslim women have been presidents or prime ministers of Muslim populations, they're shocked. Because they don't hear about that. And... I wasn't, you know, I I read that in some notes uh, before we started talking, Sumbul, and and I wasn't shocked, but I was surprised it was that many. Yes, well, because (laughs) what's really funny is that when I I speak to audiences and I tell them, very often they want me to list all the names and countries, and I tell them, you can Google it, they're presidents and prime ministers, they're not a secret. (laughs) <laughs> but, you know, but, um, you know, but we don't hear about that. Why? Because it doesn't confirm our biases. You know, we, we get the images of the Saudi women and the downtrodden Afghan women because those can confirm our biases. And the fact that the president of Indonesia, which is the largest Muslim country on earth, uh, she was a woman and the eighth most powerful person in the world, According to Forbes, you know, that doesn't make it into into mainstream media. It's not highlighted. So I think we have to just look past. And and what are what are some ways we can do that? Um, what are are there resources that that people can look to so that they can go beyond what they typically see on on cable and evening news? Um well, let's see. Um, oh, here's a shameless plug. They, they could read my books. <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing um, shameless about it. Because <laughs> that is what I talk about. Um, there are other great books out there. John Esposito has, is a professor at Georgetown. He write, has written a lot of books on, on Islam and Muslims. Um, they're, you know, they're different. So my books, I have a degree in Islamic law, and so I... I write books that can be used in the classroom, but I also make them palatable by putting in a lot of um, personal anecdotes and Star Trek examples <laughs> and, <laughs> and, uh, and other sorts of examples. And I write them in first person so that they're more uh, they're more relatable. Um, but there are other books out there as well that can um, uh, that can be read. Um, there are online. I'm sure there are online sources. But unfortunately, if you just Google Islam, you usually get the hating, the hate sites. Yeah, see, that's so, that's what I'm afraid of. Is you know, I'm I'm about to you know, when we wrap up our conversation, I'm about to encourage people to do a deeper dive. But if if all roads lead to the wrong information, mm-hmm. you know, I I, I don't want to steer people in that direction. Yeah, I do have a page on my website. I do have a page of other resources. Oh, cool. So they can go take a look at that. It's it's an easy website. It's muslimnextdoor.com. Um, 
Now, um, but that's yeah, and and that's where I so so I think the first thing to do when you do look at resources, see who's putting them up, and because there are you know there is a uh, an Islamophobia network in this country that uh, it's it's a loose network of individuals and organizations, and it's been well documented. They make a lot of money promoting fear and and anxiety about Muslims, and so. And they also have a lot of books out there and a lot of websites and resources. So you have to be careful. I would say always, you know, see if, if this person is an academic in the field. See what their credentials are before you read what they're writing. Yeah, see, I was going to blame all that on the Russians. <laughs> <laughs> but but all kidding aside, um, there there is a history in the US of immigration there are some people who you know freely admit that we're all immigrants but there mm-hmm. was a period of time in american history when assimil- uh, assimilation was expected you know you learned english and you mm-hmm. dressed like western europeans and you know you converted to christianity and you know all of that there there was there were even efforts to normalize indigenous people people that were already here yes. Um, yes. and and now it's i think it's hard for people to fully understand what multiculturalism is and what it means you know, there there is this core of people out there who are not violent, who are not haters, but they do have fear, and their their concern is that they don't understand what's going on around them and why people would want to come here that don't like things the way they are here. Do you know what okay. I mean by that? It's, I, yeah, it's hard yeah, to even I think explain. That is part of the I think that is part of the um, the mythology, though this this idea that Muslims come here and they don't want to assimilate. That is something that is repeated over and over. Yeah. And I have, to, but I have to say that you know most Muslims uh, look like anybody else. Like if you saw me walking down the street, you wouldn't know that I was a Muslim unless I told you. So how would you know uh, how many Muslims want to assimilate or how many have assimilated? Or if you look at our um, if you look at Rashida Tlaib, who is in Congress, she looks just like anybody else, right? Um, so, so the whole—I mean, the whole idea of Sharia as a scare word was started by those in the Islamophobia network, and um, it was started to portray Muslims as unable to follow American law. Muslims have to have their own law. This is this is not true. Um, in fact, Sharia requires Muslims to follow the laws of their country. This is actually a, a requirement. Muslims who live anywhere are required to follow the laws of their country and are not allowed to to try to overthrow governments or anything like that. So, again, this is this is a lot of mythology that's going on. A majority, according to polls, a majority of Americans have negative views of Muslims, but a majority also say that they've never met a Muslim. So I would say maybe the first thing to do is go out and meet a Muslim, <laughs> um, because it's always you know we, we always fear the unknown, don't we? I mean, of course, that's that's just a human tendency. So if you, so it's in the we don't human have to be DNA. Unknown. 
Right, right. And Muslims don't have to be unknown. You know, we're Americans. Muslim, for example, Muslim American women are the second most educated of any faith group in the United States. Um, Muslim American women have the most parity of income with men of any faith group in the United States. So clearly, you know, we're functioning members of society. Um, if you only see the extremists on the news, then that's what you're going to think we're all like. But um, again, well, we're a quarter of the world's population. <laughs> that's a clear, lot of people. Clearly, Sumbul, it's... it's um I, I think people need to meet more Muslims who watch Star Trek. <laughs> or even just more Muslims. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll, I'll go along with that. But but we have to we we do have to wrap it up. But my my guest is uh, Sumbul uh, Ali Karamali. She is the author of a book called Demystifying Sharia: What It Is, How It Works, and Why It's Not Taking Over Our Country. And um, she is a Muslim American legal expert, and 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 a real delight to talk to. Um, oh, I, thank you. And I, I hope we get a chance to talk about this some more on another occasion, Sumbul, because I think it's I think it's important to have this conversation. And I feel like we've only just scratched the surface, but we uh, are running out of time. So. That being said, as I do with all of my guests, I will ask you to share um, your website um, and, and how people can find out more about you and your work, past, present, and future. Oh, well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. I have just loved having this conversation with you. Uh, my website is it's muslimnextdoor.com, all one word, muslimnextdoor.com, easy to remember. That's great, because I thought we were going to have to spell your name about three times. You could. <laughs> if, you, if you spell my name, you also get there, but I'm not going to inflict that on your listeners. <laughs> so, Muslim Next Door. Yes, MuslimNextDoor.com. Yeah, that's great. And, Sumbul, thanks so much for sharing your thoughts and expertise with me today. I really appreciate it. No, thanks so much, Tom. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Once again, the name of the book is Demystifying Sharia, What It Is, How It Works, and Why It's Not Taking Over Our Country. We'll have more of the Tom Sumner program. Old-fashioned radio For a new generation Tom Sumner Program.com The Tom Sumner Program.com The Tom Sumner Program.com From the Tom Sumner
Hello there, citizens. Darkwing Duck here. And every time I'm in Flint fighting crime, I always stop by the Tom Sumner program. Don't forget, stay dangerous. Darkwing Duck out. While we've been staying safe at home, scientists have been on a journey. The destination, a COVID-19 vaccine. This journey began decades ago with research into other coronaviruses. Scientists built from there with months of research and development, cooperation with other experts worldwide, and clinical trials on tens of thousands of volunteers of diverse race, age, and health status. They arrived at a safe, effective vaccine, and hundreds of thousands in Michigan have already been vaccinated. But the next step is ours. We need to get the vaccine when we can, keep wearing masks correctly, and taking precautions until we reach our destination, freedom from COVID-19, and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. The Tom Sumner Program has hosted live candidate forums for local, state, and national offices at bars, restaurants, coffee shops, and colleges. Armchair Politics has gone to Lansing, Frankenmuth, Birch Run, and Hell. Hell, Michigan, that is. We've done shows all the way to the Mighty Mac and back to the bricks. We've done remotes from a baseball stadium in Lansing, a grocery store opening in Flint, and from a moving train. We'd like you to tell us where to go next. You can write to us at TomSumnerProgram.com, call us at 810-339-8255, or contact us on Facebook. This is your chance to tell the Tom Sumner Program where to go. Say, objection. I object. I object to that, Your Honor. Oh, oh. hi, Mom. What's up? Dana, what are you doing? Oh, you know, just um, Attorney General stuff. Listen, I have a legal question. What is it, Mom? I just got a call from the water company. Apparently, your father has not been paying the bill. I guess they're going to turn the water off because we owe more than $1,000 now. Can you believe it? Actually, I can't. So listen, we just have to send them $200 in Edible Arrangements gift cards and that will keep the water on. Now, here's the legal question. What is the website for Edible Arrangements? Mom, it's an imposter scam. Imposter scam. Is that .com or .edu? No, the call was a scam. Scammers will pretend to be a government agency or a utility company or someone else you might do business with. A big red flag is if they tell you that you can pay them using gift cards. So when in doubt, ask for the information to be sent to you in writing. And never give a caller or someone you don't know your personal information or your money. If you do suspect an imposter scam, Report it to my office at mi.gov slash agcomplaints. Okay, all right. And Dina, where do I file a complaint that my daughter hasn't visited in over a month? Does your office have a website for that? Okay, Mom, I'm hanging up now.
I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. This is U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. She wheels her wheelbarrow through streets that are narrow. Her barrow is narrow, her hips are too wide. So wherever she wheels it, the neighborhood feels it. Her girdle keeps scraping the homes on each side. In Dublin's fair city, where girls are so pretty, my Molly stands out cause she weighs 18 stone. It's 256 pounds. I don't mind her fat, but it's not only that, but she's cockeyed and muscle-bound, Molly Malone. I know a man, his name is Lang, and he has a neon sign. And Mr. Lang is very old, so they call it Old Lang Sign. Oh, what have you done, Billy Sal, Billy Sal? Oh, what have you done, charming Billy? You took almost every cent from the U.S. government, which you spent on fertilizer, which is silly. All day, all night, Cary Grant. That's all I hear from my wife is Cary Grant. What can he do that I can't? Big deal, big star, Cary Grant. Oh, the moon is bright tonight upon the car wash. So I'm having my Volkswagen washed again. But the way things go with me, the way my luck runs, just as soon as they're finished, it will rain. On top of old Smokey, all covered with hair. Of course, I'm referring to Smokey the Bear. Here's a famous old folk song that you all know entitled Aura Lee. Every time you take vaccine, take it orally. As you know, the other way is more painfully. My grandfather's clock was the best ever made by the Timex Company. Just like the clock John Cameron Swayze displayed last night on the old TV. 
Oh, it works underwater so perfectly And it still makes a ticking sound Which my grandfather tried only this afternoon And that's how the old man drowned Do not make a stingy sandwich pile the cold cuts high Customers should see salami coming through the rice Oh, I diet all day and I diet all night It's enough to drive me bats Got no gravy or potatoes Cause the whole refrigerator's full of polyunsaturated fats Fairly well, Metrical And the others of that ilk Let the diet start tomorrow Cause today I'll drown my sorrow in a double malted milk When you go to the delicatessen store Don't buy the liverwurst Don't buy the liverwurst Don't buy the liverwurst I repeat what I just said before Don't buy the liverwurst Don't buy the liverwurst Oh, buy the corned beef if you must The pickled herring you can trust And the locks puts you in orbit A-okay but that big hunk of liverwurst has been there since October 1st And today is the 23rd of May So when you go to the delicatessen store Don't buy the liverwurst Don't buy the liverwurst Don't buy the liverwurst It'll make your insides awful sore Don't buy the liverwurst Don't buy the liverwurst This was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program. Proceed 
In a stretch of quarantine that lasts until July A super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus And if you got a better cough in your arm And if you got a better... <coughs> now back in 1918, influenza had its run But half the docks were busy overseas with World War I Today we have mass media and scientists to say If you don't want this virus, well then stay six feet away Super damn important that we practice isolation Cause we're asymptomatic while it's an incubation We'll overwhelm our hospitals if there's not mitigation It's super damn important that we practice isolation If we don't do it, then we're all gonna die If we don't do it, then we're all gonna die And so I hope at last you'll take this lesson here to heart Cause it's already scary and we're only at the start If you get bored, just think of the immunocompromised Who can't go much of anywhere unless it's sterilized Oh, super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus If we don't act quick and social distance, it will mire us In a stretch of quarantine, the last until July A super bad, transmittable Super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus. Super bad, transmittable, contagious. 
Alexander Zanjic, Don't Touch That Dial. You're listening to Tom Sumner. <laughs> 